Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. There was a very recognizable voice on all the media this week. This was the tragic fulfillment of a program of intolerance and arrogance. Vengeance is not our goal, nor do we seek merely a just retribution. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity, regardless of his race or creed. The case we present is a plea of humanity to law. Yes, you guessed it. I'm sure you heard him coming through the airwaves. That was Ben Ferentz, the last surviving prosecutor of the Nuremberg Trials. He died at home aged 103, really central character in all kinds of parts of our world. So we thought that we'd ask some people, some who knew him a bit, the ones who were inspired by him, to tell us about him and what he meant to them for this international justice project that we're part of here, the way that law is used to provide justice for victims of atrocities. We mourn the loss of a true force of nature. I hope that generations of young lawyers, students, professors, academics, um, activists, journalists, communicators, politicians, everyone will, will follow his example. Law, not war. Law, not war. Never give up. Never give up. Ben was the closest that we'll ever have to a rock star in international criminal justice. But before we continue with those tributes, let's give everybody a bit of context. To start with Nuremberg, the trial he prosecuted, just aged 27, was case number nine uh, against 22 leading member of the Einsatzgruppen that operated on the Eastern Front in World War II. And those were special task forces of the SS and the Nazi police who would carry out mass shootings of Jews, communists, and other undesirables in their eyes in the territories that Germany seized from the Soviet Union at the time. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary seeing that incredibly young figure in front of the judges in Nuremberg. And then it gives you a sense of how long his life was, because within his lifetime, we also have uh, his involvement with the creation of the International Criminal Court. He was right there in Rome. He was right there actually in the room with the delegates at times. Um, But those are a couple of the main points. Where did you first come across him, Steph, anywhere? I think he mostly kind of floated around The Hague and was always asked, you know, for news agencies, they love to get a former prosecutor of some big trial to comment on current prosecutors. So I think I already saw his name pop up when former Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic came to The Hague, because then, uh, you know, as always, they hark back to Nuremberg trials, and then there's some kind of comparison and some comment of a former war crimes prosecutor on this big war crimes trial. So I think that was where I first ran into the name. I really wasn't involved at all with the way that uh, the ICC sort of came into being at the end of the uh, 1990s. So the first time I came across him, I think, was at the Lubanga trial, which was the first trial at the ICC. And uh, quite interestingly, he was given a space uh, to say something to the judges. And I must admit that it made me feel a bit uncomfortable. I was a bit kind of suspicious, you know, that comment that we've just had about this celebrity rock star-ness. I mean, there was Angelina Jolie also in the audience and, 
it all felt a bit like, woo, 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 you know, here we go. Isn't this amazing? Aren't we amazing? Rather than kind of the reality of the court. So uh, it's taken me a while to kind of get my head around what he is involved with. Some of the other things that I've noticed are the involvement of the foundation that uh, he helped to set up with work at the United States Holocaust Museum in DC. And that's been some very important work with different activist groups in terms of trying to help them get sort of think about where justice might come for them. And we've also seen massive work by him and his son, Don Ferenc, to get the aggression part of the ICC statute through. That's the part where invading another state is illegal. So quite a hot topic right now. But he already thought of that in 1998 and thought that it was really important to do that. I think that was a huge hill that uh, they had to climb. We've already done one podcast on how that part of the ICC statute developed and it's still very sticky. As you say, in current circumstances, uh, it's not as if that part of the ICC statute really applies in the current war, the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Um, I met him actually a few years ago. He was in The Hague when his bench was inaugurated. I don't know if you've been there and had a look at it, Stephanie. It's right outside Peace Palace has a lovely view of one of the towers, and it has uh, engraved in the wood, law, not war. I mean, he was already, what, 98 by that stage when I met him, but wow, was he so sharp. I did a short interview with him. We were sitting outside where he was staying in his hotel, so there are traffic noises and people noises. I hadn't intended actually for for broadcast. I was just transcribing it. And he was great fun to spar with. I mean, he really gave no quarter. Here's just a little bit, it gives you a a flavor of what he was like. I was asking him about um, him using the term genocide in that trial in Nuremberg, which was not yet, you know, a full convention. It was being discussed by Raphael Lemkin, who'd come up with the idea and was getting sort of support for his idea of the Genocide Convention together, but Ben used the term himself in his Nuremberg Address. And I used it in the opening statement because there was no statute which had made that a statutory crime, and I was perfectly aware of that. Nevertheless, because I knew Lemkin and I sympathized with him and with his goal, I made it a point to refer to what the Einsatzgruppen were doing as genocide because it was, in fact, a classical genocide to destroy entire people, murder all of them, and you couldn't get any clearer or better word than genocide for that. So it appears in my, I think, the second paragraph of uh, my opening statement in the Einsatzgruppen trial, which I used the word genocide as a crime. And later, the United States signed up to the Genocide Convention. Ha, ha, ha. Pardon me for laughing. It took the United States 40 years and a pleading senator who wouldn't go away um, before they finally said, okay, okay, so genocide is a crime. They went on then to define it to make sure that no America would ever be tried or convicted of this statute. So, you know, as I say, that gives you a flavor of what he was like. I mean, he was so critical also of the American government and the American authorities at different times. Um, And I kind of feel that's not necessarily come through in all of the uh, discussions around him. He's kind of seen as just this sort of representing the American point of view. And he wasn't. He was critical of absolutely everybody, which uh, I found him really interesting. 
So let's hear some more from those who knew him. We start with Diane Marie Amen from uh, the University of Georgia. She's a scholar of the Nuremberg trials. Her podcast with Francine Hurst is still one of our most downloaded episodes. And here she reflects on Ferenc's contribution to her work. We mourn the loss of a true force of nature, Benjamin Ferenc, who died recently in New York in the 104th year of his truly remarkable life. Ben inspired all of us who work on issues of international criminal law. All of us, that is, who embrace his mantra of law, not war. I myself am so privileged to have interviewed him at the 2010 International Humanitarian Law Dialogues in Chautauqua, New York. Our subject was women professionals at the Nuremberg Trials. Indeed, it was a comment that he had made a few years earlier to Diane Orentlicker and Patty Sellers that had helped to launch my own research into that area. I quoted this interview in an article about Ben's colleague, the lawyer Judge Cecilia Getz, and I look forward to including more such quotes in my own book, forthcoming on Nuremberg women. Indeed, it must be noted at this point that one of them was Ben's own wife, his childhood sweetheart, to whom he would be married for seven decades, Gertrude Fried Ferenz. I'd like to close by expressing my deep gratitude for the support that the Planethood Foundation provided to many worthy international criminal law endeavors embarked upon by many of us in the community. It was a foundation that was established and operated by Ben and by his son, Don Ferenz, to whom I would like to extend my deepest condolences. I, we also reached out to Kip Hill, an attorney specializing in atrocity crimes accountability, who was one of the really the driving forces behind Ben getting one of the U.S.'s highest honors, the Congressional Gold Medal, which he got last January. And Kip explains what Ben's engagement with people meant to him. There was always something reaffirming about Ben, reaffirming about why you got into this field, reaffirming about the principles when other things would make us so jaded or reaffirming when, you know, the leaders in this field were falling short. I would say that many of us believe that because of his unflinching devotion to principles, to his ability to speak truth to power, and in his unwillingness to accept the status quo, particularly when that status quo violated key principles that animate international criminal justice. Ben kind of operated at the highest levels as well as um, engaging with all kinds of people. And this is uh, Adam Jeng, and he's the former UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, and he's the former Registrar of the Rwanda Tribunal. And he wanted also to give us a little insight into Ben's kind of consistent presence and lobbying, um, really uh, at these highest levels within the UN against war. This outstanding man, Prosecutor Ferenc, whose journey is inscribed in the history of mankind, has left us a part of his strength, of his dignity, of his commitment, of his honor, and of his respect. We will never forget him, and we pledge to invest and make his legacy that is our common pride grow. Please allow me to share some excerpts from a message I received from him following his visit to New York. The goal of his visit was to seek suggestions for what more we could do 
individually or together to help move toward a more human and peaceful world. He expressed his conviction that the old system of unlimited and uncontrolled state sovereignty must be curbed to serve the needs of threatened world population. As he said on his message, the Nuremberg Court concludes that illegal war making is the supreme international crime is ignored. Unfortunately, an effective enforcement system is still lacking. I'm hopeful that by joining our thinking and efforts, we can inspire hearts and minds to recognize that change is vital for human survival. Even in my 99th year, I keep pounding away. Law, not war. Law, not war. Never give up. Never give up. Law cannot act in a vacuum. Social changes are also essential. May his soul rest in eternal peace. And we asked our contributors also to if they had a special memory they wanted to share of Ben. And, and Kip told us of the time as a young lawyer when he had to kind of usher Ben around Washington, D.C. for a series of high-level meetings and what that was like for him. We couldn't make it five feet or 1.5 meters for those. Uh, that makes more sense. <laughs> Without someone stopping Ben and wanting to talk with him and take a picture with him, Uh, and in that respect, Ben was the closest that we will ever have to a rock star in international criminal justice. Everyone wanted to talk to him. And on top of the laughter, the constant laughter throughout the course of the day, that was always the, the case with Ben. It was just so captivating to see someone of his stature, just the care and consistency that he talked with everyone and he engaged with everyone. He wanted to know about everyone, wanted to get to, to know what they were hoping to do. And he took the time to try to find the right piece of advice that may be useful to them. And he just, he just really cared. And, uh, David Donut Catton, who's the head of the Parliamentarians for Global Action, he's also adjunct professor at New York University. He told also a similar story about how Ben always engaged with law students and was always open to discussion. The bit that I've picked from what David told us is him remembering Ben right in the middle of the Rome Statute negotiations. So you've kind of got the picture of this, the middle of July, sweltering heat, and Ben just kind of sitting in the room and really working the delegations as some of the most dramatic parts of the discussion of how to get the Rome Statute through were happening in front of him. My sharpest memory of Ben is really linked to the adoption of the Rome Statute. Uh, there was an empty room in the afternoon of the 17th of July for the committee of the old session. And there was a postponement. Uh, hours and hours would have passed with the room being totally empty because the final package for the Rome Statute was being put together by the uh, committee presided over by Ambassador Philip Kirsch of Canada. But Ben was already rather uh, senior at that time, almost, I believe, 80. And with the wife... He was sitting in a peninsula in the middle of, of the room for the committee of the hall. It was like a peninsula of chairs going inside of the, of the room, in the middle of the delegations for the NGO seats. 
and he would occupy the best seat in the center of the room, uh, left of the Italian delegation uh, seats and just in front of the Egyptians and and in the middle of, of the action. And when I saw him there, I could not resist. And I told Ben, Ben, could you keep me a chair on your side, uh, on the side of you and your wife, so that I can be in the middle of the action when these will commonly come to fruition? And he said, yes, of course. And after three hours, it was like almost uh, 8 p.m., there were the two no-action motions to defeat the Rome Statute, one made by the United States of America and the other one made by India. And I was there in the middle of the room uh, and, 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 you know, with Ben, we were looking at what, what was going on. Egypt was initially going with those against the statue. Then the Italians stand up and run against the ambassador of Egypt to Italy, say, you cannot do this. And I was also telling them, look at the other delegations there on the back. They are voting no. And then there was a rush by some delegations to, to stop them from voting no and change into abstention. It was an enormous moment of uh, lawmaking and delegation changing their position due, due, due to their uh, friendships with other delegations. And in the end, uh, Malawi and Norway defeated uh, the United States and, <laughs> and India with an overwhelming majority of votes, which then translated into the 120 votes in the, in the plenary later on at, uh, during the night when the UN stopped the clock. Uh, with Ben, we shared so many opinions and ideas. Well, I told him, you know, where is Kofi Annan? Um, and he said to me, ah, he has no courage to be here. And I said, yes, of course, he's scared of the Rome statute not being adopted because the Americans are against. And he said, what a shame, my own country always in the back seat and, 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 and in the wrong position. So I think it was an enormous honor for me as a young lawyer, as a, as a PhD student at that time, to be even considered for friendship by such a legend of international criminal law. Over the years, we were then uh, teaching together at the school of Professor Otto Trifterer for, for 20 years every summer in Salzburg meeting with students and his main message was I'm here to just pass the torch to the future uh, to the next uh, generations and uh, I think nobody has been as successful as Ben Franks in that endeavor so I I really pay tribute today to him and his legacy and I hope that generations of young lawyers students professors academics um activists, journalists, communicators, politicians, everyone will, will follow his example. Um, the rule of law should replace the rule of force and we should live in a just war where, you know, everyone who ro- launch a war of aggression would be prosecuted for his uh, criminal conduct. Yeah, this is another part where you can really see Ben's kind of fingerprints throughout international uh, criminal justice as we know it now. And Kip also pointed out the sheer breadth of his work and all the things he was involved in. To try to summarize Ben's legacy is a feat in and of itself. A good place to start is to say that the evolutionary story of international criminal justice as we know it is intertwined with Ben's own story, to put it plain and simple. If we were to focus just on longevity alone, that would be a remarkable legacy and one hard to fathom considering his career covered Nuremberg to Rome, past Rome and everything in between. Yet if we look even closer, um, he wasn't a passive bystander in this, but he was an active participant 
in the development of each and every atrocity crime. His contributions as a practitioner, as a scholar, as an advocate, uh, represent key moments in the development of, again, each and every atrocity crime and the field of holding individuals accountable for atrocity crimes. He was uh, major chapters in that story. And in that regard, Ben's subset of legacy is, is truly unparalleled. To round off this episode, we were also very lucky to catch Ben's son, Donald Ferens, and we put some questions to him. We'll say goodbye first. Yeah, I'll say goodbye uh, because I think it's really nice to listen to Donald just talking through his, uh, his father. And we'll leave you now with our chat with Don, where we asked him the same questions we asked our other contributors about his legacy. What was it like to work with your father? And obviously, in your case, it's because he was your father, was that strange? But in general, what kind of a person was he like to work with? Actually, it's interesting that you use the expression work with. My father was really someone who was more or less a one-man band. Um, he worked primarily on his own. I worked in the same field at the same time, but in fact, we worked uh, a bit differently. Nonetheless, he was easy to work with in that sense. You know, he wasn't someone who made a lot of demands on others that I'm aware of. You may perhaps be aware that during his war crime investigator period at the end of World War II, he had a Jeep on which it was painted in German, Immer Alain, always alone. And in fact, my dad, in many ways, was always alone uh, in that he did and, you know, he pursued what he wanted to pursue in his own way. And the another question that we are asking, which is a very broad one, is how would you describe his legacy? I think, I think my dad's legacy in terms of what his life will have meant uh, after his life is over and now that it is over is really embodied in the inspiration that he provided, not simply in the work that he did during his life, that is his work, but in terms of his legacy, what remains after his work. Certainly his restitution work changed the lives in a very real way of people who had survived the Holocaust and indirectly their descendants as well. Uh, and that's part of his legacy. In terms of providing a foundational basis at Nuremberg, he was part of a team of people. He was not there a one-man band, but he was part of a group that was very dedicated, not simply to indicting and prosecuting war criminals and those who had been involved in committing horrific crimes and atrocities, but also in indicting a world order which needed to be improved and changed. It was the world itself it is guilty to a certain extent of continuing to allow the type of lawlessness that we still see today. And in that, to that extent, the indictment is still one that needs to be fulfilled by the entire world getting together and really cleaning up our act globally. Is there anything that he did or a particular way that he surprised you? I wouldn't say my dad did things in terms of, you know, surprising people. My dad was a guy that, in fact, used to say, I don't like surprises. Uh, he didn't like to be surprised. But I think the fact that my dad lived to 103 and was still active during most of that time, even in the few weeks before his death, um, he was making 
little video clips that I helped him make. My wife, Valentina, and I came to see him in January and spent two and a half months with him in Florida. We came from our home in Wales because I knew he looked so unwell that I didn't think it would be very long uh, for him. And even in February, just a few weeks before he passed, he was sending notes of thanks to people like Anja Listman, who lives in Fulda, Germany. And if you have never read the story of the synagogue, not synagogue, but the prayer room in Fulda, you should go to my father's website, uh, benferenz.org, and read the story. And this is a woman who in Fulda is carrying on my dad's legacy. I won't spoil the story. I'll let people go and read it for themselves. He sent a note of thanks to Kip Hale, who was somebody who is a, you know, part of the, the next generation of lawyers carrying forward international justice. He sent a note of thanks to Christian Venevaser, Ambassador Venevaser, the uh, ambassador of the permanent mission of Liechtenstein to the United Nations. He sent several of those type of messages out to people. One to Barry Averidge, the film producer and maker who directed uh, Prosecuting Evil. And so he was still active and still mentally alert enough to understand what was going on around him immediately. And that's, that's really remarkable that he kept his mental faculties, his short-term memory was gone, but not his ability to be cogent in the moment. And quite frankly, that did surprise me because it just lasted so long and it was such a wonderful blessing, really. And of course, we know a lot about the story of your father uh, and you mentioned his website, but what do people who haven't heard so much about him, what is the best way for them to get to know the kind of person your father was? What would you recommend that they read or watch or listen to? Well, the movie Prosecuting Evil made by Barry Averidge provided, it's a documentary. It really provided my father a wonderful opportunity to have his voice heard because it was essentially an interview with Ben Ferenz punctuated by other people. If people can get that um, and watch that, they'll learn an awful lot about his life. There's another movie that was made by a German filmmaker, Ulibert Horn, that preceded Barry Averich's movie. Ulibert Horn sadly passed away. That movie is called A Man Can Make a Difference. And I believe that that movie, I, I hate the sound commercial, but I believe that that movie is for sale on Amazon.com, perhaps in other places. I assure you my father, nor my father, nor his family gets any royalties from e either of these movies, by the way. Um, but for people who don't know my dad and who have no connection, let's say, with international justice, I have recently said that I think my dad's message can be epitomized in something he told us as children in our family. And I'll just share the context briefly. We had four children in my family. And like all kids growing up, you know, we would leave messes behind in the bathroom or whatever else. And then when we were called out on it, we blame the other sibling. You know, we th I found it that way. And my dad used to say, don't leave a place the way you found it. Leave it the way you would like to have found it. And I, I, I choke up even thinking about it because that's the message for all of us. Leave this world a better place than when we found it. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. 
this show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.